1984 presents the Mark Steele Lectures, a series of lectures on people with a passion. Tonight, Karl Marx. Few things can be more obvious than the fact that Marx was wrong. Because if communism really was better than capitalism, it wouldn't have needed a 50-foot high wall to keep people in, would it? <laughs> if you had a party and discovered some of the guests secretly building a hot air balloon in an effort to escape, <laughs> you wouldn't say, well, that was a successful evening. <laughs> If you ever visited a communist country, it was even more obvious this was no ideal society. Like, I went to Czechoslovakia once, and the first thing I realised was that the currency was useless. I asked for a beer, and the barman said, Ein Krona. Ein Krona, what's that, one? It can't be one, surely. <laughs> 200 billion of a pound, it can't be one. <laughs> well, I went somewhere, a bread roll, bread roll, Ein Krona. A one again? <laughs> Everything can't be one krona, you don't do anything smaller than a 20? <laughs> And of course you start thinking, well, how am I going to get rid of all this useless money? It's no good back in England. I thought, I'm going to have to buy expensive things, like maybe a helicopter. <laughs> maybe that's six kroners. <laughs> but it doesn't work like that, because anything that isn't bread roll or beer, you have to buy with foreign currency. So there's people up and down the street going, psh, hey, Mr. Tourist, you come here, I tell you money, cheap money, I give you what you got, good raise, four times, for you, special as you, all this. And you go in a shop, bread roll. I'm Krona. <laughs> I change money for you. I give you four times, five times special rate I give for you. Uh, and I thought, probably this would just be like going into your local greengrocers and the woman saying, there you are, darling, there's your mushrooms, there's your tomatoes. Do you fancy a bit of crack? <laughs> what would you like, dear? Three grams, that's a little bit over there, darling, all right. <laughs> and yet the people who write off Marx equally don't seem to make a great deal of sense. New Labour argues that he's out of date because it was written 150 years ago, but why should that matter? When the Blairs are having a dinner party, do they throw their empty wine glasses in the air going, Oh, don't worry, you don't still believe that old gravity nonsense, do you? <laughs> Isaac Newton, that's 300 years ago. The glasses won't fall, they won't float, they'll find a third way into the dishwasher. <laughs> So opponents of Marx can be just as crazy as any mad Stalinist. Now, when Francis Wien was researching his biography of Marx, he found a book called Was Marx a Satanist? <laughs> and the evidence is that... Men usually wore beards in that time, but not beards like this. <laughs> so you could tell he was evil from his beard. <laughs> Which, funnily enough, is what I've always thought about Noel Evans. <laughs> Now, in this programme, I'm going to suggest that far from being out of date, there's little in the modern world that would surprise Marx except for his own reputation, because he lived most of his life in poverty, unknown, and writing for just a handful of followers. And if Marx had seen the statues and the buildings and the towns named after him, he would probably have repeated what he said in an interview towards the end of his life. All I know is that I am no Marxist. <laughs> Marx was born in 1818 in the west of what is now Germany, in the small town of Trier, and the area had been invaded by Napoleon, who began to modernise the region. So throughout his youth, Marx was surrounded by an environment of debate. His math teacher was accused of atheism, his Hebrew teacher was warned for singing revolutionary songs, and his headmaster was threatened with the sack for taking part in a demonstration against censorship. What a fantastic school! <laughs> Every lesson must have started with his teacher shouting, Will you stop doing as you're told and start mucking about? <laughs> Marx then went to Bonn to study law and from there to Berlin, but he'd already fallen in love with Jenny von Westphalen, a childhood friend whose father was the counsellor for Trier, and from Bonn he sent her poems. For example, 
I could a thousand volumes fill, writing only Jenny in each line. Still they would a world of thought conceal, verses sweet that yearning gently still. Now, you might not think much of that, but it hardly fits the image of the soulless economist presented by his enemies or by his communist supporters. They'd have you believe that the only love poem Marx would be capable of writing would be something like, When I look at your hair and see raindrops drip off it, I'm reminded that X over V equals profit. <laughs> Marx asked Jenny to marry him, but she was uncertain. Her half-brother Ferdinand, however, was even more uncertain and asked the Berlin police to follow Marx and keep him in touch with Marx's activities. The police told Ferdinand that Marx wasn't attending his lectures and was drinking wine by the litre. Isn't that typical of the police? They're asked to spy on a student, and the best they can do is he doesn't go to his lectures and he drinks. <laughs> if Ferdinand had paid him for another week, they'd have said, and he wears baggy jumpers and says things like, I'm so going to fail my exams. <laughs> Marx then became a follower of the philosopher Hegel. Any idea, said Hegel, is in constant conflict with other ideas, and the result of this conflict is new ideas that leads to a new set of conflicts and new ideas and so on. And Hegel called this process dialectics. Now, that might not seem very controversial, until you realise that if every idea is constantly changing, no idea in human society is natural. So take the idea of patriotism. Now, many people would argue the most important thing about us is our country, as if our nation has existed forever. Which isn't surprising, as everything leads us to think like that. Even at the Olympic Games, you get the commentary that goes, and the way first time, and Davison's looking strong out of the block for Great Britain, and Davison's into his stride and extremely comfortable, and he's picking up the pace, and as they come up to the finishing line, it's Davidson in seventh place! And the winner's some American, then a Swede, a frog, a couple of krauts, and what a run from Davidson! <laughs> But looked at dialectically, for most of human history, there's been no such thing as nations. The idea of England or Britain is a very recent concept. When pagan travellers delivered the rocks to Stonehenge, the chief of the village didn't say, Thank you very much. Here's a pound. Not a franc or a mark or a euro, but a pound, because Stonehenge is British in Europe, but not run by Europe. <laughs> Take another example, language. You get people who write letters to newspapers. Dear sir, I was on a bus and all these schoolboys kept saying, in it. My father was one of the many who rode to Dunkirk. If he'd known it would end up like this, he wouldn't have bothered. <laughs> Looked at dialectically, there's no proper language as it's constantly changing. It's like saying, why do we never hear the word forsooth anymore? That's the trouble with people born after 1604, no respect. <laughs> So you can see how Hegel could lead to radical conclusions. And Marx agreed with all this, but he discovered what he saw as a flaw in Hegel, which was that, according to Hegel, the change was always driven by ideas. In this sense, Marx said, Hegel was upside down. Because it's not the ideas in our head that determine what lives we lead, it's the lives we lead that determine our ideas. For example, if someone's brought up on a rough estate in Birmingham and they end up with no work and no money, they may resort to stealing things. If you took the same people away from their environment at birth and brought them up to be ninth in line to the throne, at the age of 20, when they were presented to the King of Norway, they wouldn't go, here, mate, do you want to buy a set of knocked-off saucepans? <laughs> or another example is religion. It's often assumed that Marx hated religion, as illustrated by his line about the opium of the people, but his starting point was that, like all other ideas, it was a product of the environment. So Marx was sympathetic to religion. The whole quote was... 
Religion is the heart of a heartless world, the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. It's like Cliff Richard. The problem with Cliff Richard is not that his music is religious, so's Bob Marley and Aretha Franklin, but Cliff is sanctimonious stars on Sunday, vicar of Dibley Tea Cake Parish Council, bring an unwanted tin of apricots to the Harvest Festival religion. <laughs> but Marx, the first thing to look at in working out why it was that a society behaved in a certain way was how human beings in that society produced things, because from the earliest men we've survived by our ability to labour. Every extra person, he said, produces wealth as well as consumes it. Now this might seem obvious, but the dominant idea in Britain at the moment is we can't take any more people, we're full up as it is. But if it's true that more people makes us worse off, the most densely populated part of the world is Manhattan, so they should all be famished. But anyone who's ever been there knows it's a constant battle not to stuff your face 24 hours a day. <laughs> Ask for a cheese sandwich and they go, One cheese sandwich coming up? Oh, that comes with a buffalo on the side. <laughs> everything comes with pancakes. You have a huge fry-up piled up with chips and they whack pancakes on the top. <laughs> anything, you go for petrol. What do you want? Five gallons of gas? Here's your pancakes to go. <laughs> and Marx's theory is guaranteed that he burnt all his bridges with his middle-class background. He hardly ever saw his father again, especially after his dad wrote him a letter suggesting he boosted his reputation by writing a poem. To the honour of Prussia and allotting a role to the genius of the monarchy, executed in a patriotic and German spirit. <laughs> I don't think he quite got it, Mr Marx, did he? <laughs> if Karl Marx had written a poem to the King of Prussia, it would have been brilliant to see him deliver it, though, wouldn't it? Your Majesty, I have a poem. Shall I read it? Oh, yes. There was a young monarch from Prussia whose wife didn't want him to touch her, but despite all his pleading, the years of inbreeding make him look like a wrestler from Russia. <laughs> Marx then went to Cologne to edit a liberal newspaper, and soon after he married Jenny, and within a few years they'd already had four children, but the paper that he was editing was shut down by the authorities, so they had to move to Paris. While there, they were visited by Frederick Engels, who arrived at similar conclusions to Marx, and they formed a partnership that carried on for the rest of their lives. They helped form the Communist League, and together they wrote the Communist Manifesto. It was only a pamphlet about 30 pages long, but has possibly the most famous first and last lines of any book. It starts... There is a spectre haunting Europe. It is the spectre of communism. Though in the first English edition, this was translated as... A frightful hobgoblin is stalking throughout Europe. <laughs> That's why it sold so many copies. People thought it was a book of fairy stories. <laughs> Maybe it started a trend. The Labour Theory of Value and the Beanstalk. <laughs> but all the way through the Communist Manifesto are lines that must have seemed as shocking at the time as they were baffling. For example... Society is more and more splitting into two great classes directly facing each other. Bourgeoisie and proletariat. Proletariat meant specifically workers in factories and large workplaces, and bourgeoisie meant the people who owned and ran those workplaces. Now, it's often claimed that the Communist Manifesto was all right for its time when people worked in factories, but it's out of date now as there are a few manual workers left. But Marx insisted that a merchant's clerk was as much a part of the working class as a factory worker, because offices are just as boring and unpleasant as a factory, aren't they? They're just not so dramatically working class, that's all. Because no one ever shouts, Quick, run! The photocopier's collapsing in on us! <laughs> but silliest of all are these people who go, It's all you posh middle-class southerners what's got all money. 
Like there's no working class in the South. In which case, what do we say when the drains are busted? Do we go, oh dear, what a pong, better ring a northerner. <laughs> and then there's these other definitions such as, you must be middle class, you've got a mortgage. This doesn't make any sense, because in some ways a mortgage is worse than rent. Because back in the 30s, a family would see the rent man coming up the path, and then everyone would crawl behind the settee. <laughs> Shh, wait till he's gone, wait till he's gone. Shh, right, he's gone. Simple. But when your monthly statement comes through from the Halifax, you can't get away without paying by ringing them up, going through eight recorded messages and 20 minutes of Celine Dion, and then going, I'm not in. <laughs> In fact, Marx and Engels were predicting the rise of industry. At the time that they wrote the Communist Manifesto, outside Britain, there were a few factories in Belgium, a few in towns such as Lyon, a few more in Germany and America, and that was it. And yet they wrote... The bourgeoisie compels all nations to adopt the bourgeois mode of production. Which must have seemed ridiculous at the time, that places like Malaysia or Central America could one day become locked into an international system. But... Now, you could go to a shopping centre in Kuala Lumpur or Guatemala and there would almost certainly be a body shop, our price, Clinton cards, fake Irish pub, McDonald's, Pizza Hut, a bloke in a thick green pullover trying to recruit you into the AA and a crowd of Peruvian blokes in ponchos playing I just called to say I love you on the... <laughs> manifesto ends with the rallying cry... Workers of all countries unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains. Only a few hundred copies of the Communist Manifesto had even been printed and barely anyone had read it when revolution broke out in France and Germany and Marx formed a committee which advocated the collection of taxes should be... Resisted everywhere and in every way. The revolutions were defeated, after which the French and Prussian states became paranoid about any oppositionists. A police sergeant arrived at Marx's house to tell him he was banished from Paris, so the family fled to London. And following these defeats, the Communist movement went into decline and Marx and Engels were left isolated. Marx wrote to Engels... I am pleased with the isolation in which we now find ourselves. At last we have an opportunity to show we have no need of any popularity or support whatsoever. <laughs> and Marx and Engels seem to go out of their way to keep this wish about their supporters in Germany, Marx wrote... Aren't they miserable slack dogs? <laughs> no reaction, no energy in them. They're just a lot of old women. Later, about his long-time friend and supporter, the poet Ferdinand Freiligrath, he wrote to Engels... Between you and me, he's a turd. <laughs> Marx was brilliant at being rude. During one of his lectures, someone shouted... Under socialism, who would polish the shoes? So Marx shouted back, you would. <laughs> The isolation eventually affected Marx financially. He depended on handouts from Engels, who had gone to work at his father's factory in Manchester, but he was permanently broke. A Prussian spy who was following him wrote a report about his flat. Everything is broken, battered and torn, finger-thick dust everywhere. On one table are teacups with dirty rims, dirty spoons, tobacco ash, all kinds of trash that a junk dealer would be ashamed of. If you sit down, you risk a pair of trousers. <laughs> That is bad when the spy obviously feels the urge to tidy up. <laughs> and then they fell behind with the rent. So according to Jenny... Two bailiffs entered, impounded all my few possessions, beds, linen, even the cradle of my poor child, and the best toys of my girls, who wept bitter tears. And the conditions led to Marx developing a liver complaint, which resulted in him being covered in boils. In a letter to Engels, he wrote... 
Another carbuncle has erupted right under the place to which Goethe refers. I cannot walk, nor stand, nor sit, and lying down is damn difficult. And you should be informed that a new furuncle has broken out on my back. <laughs> must be quite an experience getting a letter from Marx. <laughs> As you were opening it, you wouldn't be sure whether it was going to be a thesis on dialectics or a moan about boils on his ass. <laughs> Marx could be a typical lad. One night he went up Tottenham Court Road with two mates having a glass of beer in each of the 18 pubs. And on the way home, according to his friend Liebnicht... Marx and I picked up some stones and smashed four or five street lamps until a policeman gave the signal to his colleagues on the beat when Marx showed an agility I could not have attributed to him. So you get loads of people now who argue about what Marx would say if he was here today. But there you are, what he would probably say would be, I'll have a donut with shitty sauce. <laughs> Extra hot. Oh, hang on, I've lost my wallet. <laughs> At one point, he was sufficiently boil-free while Jenny was pregnant and out of town to sleep with a maid, Helen DeMuth, and get her pregnant as well. And though Jenny was told the truth, the rest of the family was spared embarrassment by Engels, who gallantly took the rap for fathering the child. So the personal lives of the Marx household veered into every type of misery. Sometimes Marx couldn't even leave the house because his clothes had all been pawned. And then they had a child who died soon after she was born and they couldn't afford a coffin. Jenny wrote... I ran to a French refugee who lived nearby. He showed the greatest sympathy and gave me two pounds. With these, we bought the little coffin in which my poor child now slumbers in peace. All the while, Marx kept working on the book that would explain the workings of capitalism, as he saw it, Capital, or... Das Kapital, as it's better known, for some bloody reason. <laughs> no one refers to Mao's little red book as hi hi <laughs> Much of capital is just rage about the unfairness around him. There's a section on the plight of bakers working 21-hour shifts in temperatures of 90 degrees. But he also tries to show how this is a consequence of the economic system. In previous class societies, he says, exploitation has been obvious. But with capitalism, there's a pretense of fairness. The employer provides the workplace and the tools, and the worker provides the labour. The value of the commodities that the worker has made, said Marx, comes from the labour invested in them. And the worker receives only a fraction of that value. Which is why someone can work in a sweatshop and their wages aren't enough to buy a single pair of the trainers they've spent all week making. And then we end up with a society in which nothing is made unless it can yield a profit. Because when a capitalist invests, he doesn't care what he's making as long as it's profitable. When they have these mergers, the head of the multinational doesn't announce at a shareholders meeting... The Trust decided to launch a takeover bid for Weetabix Holdings Limited because we love Weetabix. Because it's crumbly and crispy and you get a free plastic dinosaur in every pack. <laughs> but, Mark said, it gets worse. Because capitalists are in competition with each other, they're compelled to try and lengthen the working day and boost productivity to get ahead of their rivals. When I was a kid, all the predictions were that by the year 2000 we'd all be working one hour a day and the rest of the time wandering around dressed in aluminium foil. <laughs> But instead, the working week is now longer than it's been for 80 years. New technology has increased the workload. Mobile phones and laptops mean people are expected to work on the way to work. <laughs> Even in the cotton mills, the workers didn't have to take a power loom home with them in the evening. <laughs> Carry on weaving down the street. <laughs> 
And all the time, he argued, capitalists are driven to behave like this, otherwise they fall behind their competitors, which is why it's naive to appeal to big business, to try and be kinder. Like when the stock market or a currency crashes and some of the press blames irresponsible speculators for only caring about profit. That's what speculators are employed for. <laughs> if a bank catches an employee making a fortune by selling currency, they're not going to say, what on earth are you doing? <laughs> once and go and take this parcel of food to an old blind lady. <laughs> Hardly anybody supports the idea of private trains, do they? Because even when they don't go upside down, they're so predictably late that when they get stuck, everyone just stares with resigned numbness, so it's like being in a First World War trench. <laughs> Until you expect someone to say, I don't know if this is the right time, but I've been scribbling a few lines of poetry. <laughs> The smell of the brake fluid wafts through the carriage. Shivering bodies all wilt like sick flowers. Word has it there's been a derailment at Harwich, and that's why we've sat here for five sodding hours. <laughs> Hospitals just seem to be outlets for free enterprise. When my daughter was born, a woman burst into the delivery room when the baby was a few hours old and said, Oh, isn't she lovely? Now, would you like a high-quality photo of your baby at a very reasonable rate? Who else was likely to come wandering in? Soon they'll have actors at the end of the bed going, Look at the state of these sheets. Myconium, blood, afterbirth, that'll never come out. <laughs> Might as well throw these away. Not so fast. Normal washing powders simply break down when it comes to those awkward, sticky placenta stains. But new Persil Automatic Extra Plus has a special anti-umbilical ingredient that gets right behind the most stubborn afterbirth and cleanses with an orange whiteness you never thought possible. Mark spent 15 years researching Capital, six months after the original deadline for the book, he answered the publisher's letter demanding the final copy by saying there was no need to worry as... I shall have finished soon, having finally begun the actual writing. <laughs> for all his analysis of work, the bit he seems to have left out is that employers aren't pleased when six months after you're supposed to have finished, you say to them, Good news, I've started! <laughs> now, the irony of Capital was that... While it may have contained the answer to the world's economic problems, it didn't solve Marx's, as it only sold 200 copies in the first two years. The lowest point came when, just as he and his family had been living for a week on bread and potatoes and were ill but couldn't afford to call a doctor, Marx received a telegram saying that Engels' wife had died. And he replied to Engels, The news of Mary's death surprised no less than it dismayed me. But after two more lines, he wrote, I no longer know which way to turn either. If I don't get a larger sum, our household can scarcely survive another two weeks. That's the pits for being self-centred, isn't it? <laughs> if they were face to face, Engels would be saying, Did you hear me? I said Mary has died! And Marks would be going, I know, it's like me, I've had flu of Veruca, one thing after another. <laughs> Things were so desperate that Jenny went to Paris to beg off a rich French friend. But just after she got there, the friends died. Though if it had been Carl, he'd have probably gone to see the bloke's family. Yes? Ah, uh, hello. Uh, I'm Karl Marx. Uh, I'm afraid I've got some bad news. Your brother's died. Oh, my God. Yes, <laughs> bit of a shock. Anyway, the thing is, uh, he was going to lend me a few, Bob, but uh, <laughs> now he's gone, obviously, that's a bit awkward, so uh, I couldn't have a score, could I? 
I'll, I'll pay you back as soon as I finish my next book. <laughs> it's about atheism, actually. Uh, it proves there's no heaven or anything like that. <laughs> you know, when you've gone, kaboom, that's the end, I'm afraid. <laughs> his state of mind was so dire, he began to wish his mother would die so that he could be bailed out by the inheritance. And when she did go, he wrote to Ingalls, Two hours ago, a telegram arrived to say that my mother is dead. I already had one foot in the grave, and in the circumstances, I am needed more than the old woman. <laughs> but still, he kept working on his exposures of capitalism. The only time he nearly succumbed to getting a paid job was when he applied to be a railway clerk, but he was turned down for his illegible handwriting. So it's lucky his wife used to write his books out for him again, really, isn't it? Well, people now would be debating what he meant by religion is the orange of the people. <laughs> and the slogan of the international communist movement would be winkles of all calories unite. <laughs> so his personal circumstances and his vision for the working class under capitalism were equally grim. But there was another side to the system that he called the bourgeois mode of production. Under capitalism, he said, the working class is compelled in factories and big offices and schools and hospitals to work together collectively because workers can only defend their conditions by organising collectively into groups like trade unions. Marx believed that as the working class united, the divisions would fade away and the working class would grow in self-esteem, becoming capable of running society. To aid this working class resistance, in 1864, Marx helped to found the International Working Men's Association, which was a socialist and trade union organisation and not one of those clubs with a snooker hall in the back where everyone drinks light and bitter and a compare going... We've got a great turn coming on next, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, he's got dialectics, he's very, very funny, and he's not only got class, he's got class struggle. Put your hands together, let's hear it for Mr Karl Marx. <laughs> and then Marx going, now I'd like to leave you with a little medley of a few numbers I think you all know. Oh, the surplus value goes to the boss, and the workers left with all that remains. So, workers of all countries, well, it's time to unite. You've got nothing to lose but your chains. <laughs> One of the best insights to Marx's character was the answers he gave to a questionnaire. Favourite hero? Spartacus. Idea of happiness? To fight. Favourite motto? Everything should be doubted. Favourite dish? Fish. <laughs> Which I bet has caused at least one split in the Marxist movement somewhere. <laughs> Over whether Marx was referring to halibut or cod. <laughs> but compare Marx's answers to the answers given in a questionnaire by Tony Blair. Asked, what was the last dream you remember? He replied, I have not had much chance for sleep, let alone dreams. You seem to be unaware that dreams don't actually take up any more time than sleep. <laughs> That's the marvellous thing about them. You can sleep and dream at the same time. <laughs> Marx could have used his middle-class position that he was born with to become a respectable lawyer, but instead he pursued a dream of a world in which the ingenuity and spirit of every human could be tapped rather than squandered. In 1883, Marx died, aged 65, and 11 people came to his funeral. Like the other subjects of this series, he dared to use his imagination and his passion. Unlike Lord Byron, Aristotle, Leonardo da Vinci, Che Guevara, Billy Holiday and Marx, most of us won't compose the poem, think the thought, paint the painting, sing the song, write the book, or wear the beret that will change the world. <laughs> But we can inject a little passion into a world that increasingly defines success as the qualities inherent in McDonald's, Happy Meals, Nike sweatshops, B&Q stores, Delia Smith and Celine Dion. <laughs> Unlike those, 
who've forgotten how to dream. The Mark Steele Lecture was written and performed by Mark Steele with the help of Martin Heider and Carla Mendonca. The producer was Lucy Armitage.